0: The primary driver in this is patient experience. Okay. We now don't require the pre-op testing, have anesthesia applied at a local level, right there in the office, have your procedure, and be home in less than three hours. Okay. Okay.
1: Hey, what's up guys? Spencer Smith here, host of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast, sponsored by Pareto Health, ClaimDoc, and PlanSite. Enjoy today's episode. Where I, mean, I guess you have to prioritize, pressure, right? right? You have to yeah. prioritize the heart first and then yeah. the rest. So you're basically like, uh, you vehicle's like totaled, and like now a, we're going to part out the, via the it's, vehicle. It's, dude, it's it's a million-dollar procedure. Is it really? Yep. Okay. But then, so once you get that heart right on ice, right? Is it that? Well, what no, I, So what they do is okay. now they
0: have, now they have, um, they call it the heart box. Okay. And it's basically an artificial, it's a chamber that you put the heart in and Dude, they keep it alive. Sci-fi. And mean, the box is yay big. Yeah. Probably, right. Right. And like that. And it's a single use box that costs 80,000 bucks. Just the box. right? Yeah. Yeah. But they basically, they basically hook it up to artificial vascular structure. Okay and pump blood through it <laughs> okay right so it's all self-contained. they got a unit of blood the artificial valve st- or artificial vascular
1: structure connected to the heart mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and pump it and the heart doesn't know any different That's crazy And then so put that that heart box yep so uh, is it being transported now to on a plane somewhere or what's happening if it's local it's via ambulance okay
0: but if it's uh, if it's, not, right, if it's not in DFW, then yeah, they put it on a plane.
1: So they have a... And what's so the Medical window City, time that they can, that heart box can... It's probably pretty extended, hour, then, right? Two hours.
0: Okay. Jeez. Medical City has a Gulfstream on standby.
1: Well, no wonder it's a problem. million dollar procedure then, man. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then so... So, so now so you have your team from Dallas that goes up to, let's say, Denver. They go to Harvest the Heart. Yep. They have a successful harvest. They get back on the airplane, get back to here, and there's a team that while they're in, in transit has that patient in, prepping them, so they're under general anesthesia, mm-hmm. prepped, open, ready to go. As soon as the heart is on campus, they start removing the existing diseased heart and bring that thing in. And you said and they've done it
1: successfully eight times? Eight times. So did anybody not live after the heart was transplanted? Because you said there was had a one couple... Patient, one patient, had one patient out of the eight that uh, rejected the heart. God. But it was like three months later that they reject their body rejected it. So then I guess they passive was but to think as complicated as what you just described to get only have one failure out of that so then it's a limited procedure you said it's been done 11 times because all in the texas circumstances- right oh, okay texas is only the third site or fourth site in the united states okay. to, have it, to be doing it but all everything has to align right the situation for the donor the situation with the and what circumstance requires that type of heart transplant versus what i would i guess consider a traditional Heart transplant. So, a patient who's brain dead
0: is different, okay, than a patient who is non-functioning. Right, they're they're basically a vegetable. Okay, right? and the family's like, hey, they're not going to live. They're going to have no quality of life. Unplug them. Versus okay. the patient who's who's brain dead, they unplug it, but they don't unplug but they don't unplug the patient until after the heart's been harvested. Right? Okay. Okay million
1: dollar per, that is, that's this crazy i'm sure i assume we're ready to go do you did we catch any of that nathaniel or we no, I, really. okay i figured we might even get to use that it was pretty that's a pretty gnarly story it's man. a crazy story right i mean it's it's it is science fiction to the max well right? the, the heart box thing that you were telling me but that's yeah. i've never heard of yeah. that i just assumed it was a igloo cooler on ice that that yeah. was getting transplanted on when right. do you know when that heart box was uh created or invented I I Uh, mean, I don't exist in this world, so I wouldn't know this stuff. But that's what's new to me. To my knowledge, going back to
0: that conversation with Dr. Lima, I think that's been a thing for like two years. Okay. Okay. It's kind of it's one of the things that's allowed for um, DCD transplants to start to occur on a more frequent basis because now your geographic reach of patients who meet criteria Mm -hmm. and the family consents. Because now you got keep in mind you have to get the family to consent. For the donor.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: You also have to get the family to consent for the recipient. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Because there's a risk. There's additional risk when the heart has completely stopped and it's dead. Right? It's gone. That some there could be some adverse effect or some adverse um, um, loss of function. Okay. That's not easily identi- identifiable. But I guess early the premise
1: on. is this now... Opens it up to more potential 100%, donors, right? Yeah. So they're saying the donor pool should increase by almost fifty percent. Fifty percent, okay. Then, yeah, I'm curious. I, I would. I mean, I, we could we could spend a whole podcast on this. We won't it's, do that, it's right? But crazy. It's, it's pretty. Yeah, awesome. I mean,
0: it's like this is this is a guy, like he's he's here in Dallas and so he loves doing this stuff too, like sharing the story and what they're well, doing. Well, yeah,
1: maybe it's Dr. Lima. You said yeah, right, Brian okay. Lima. I might have to have ask you to make an introduction because yeah, that'd be pretty rad. Yeah, he's
0: yeah. a he's a cool guy, right? Okay. It's not you know it's not in your lane. But that was one of the most viewed podcasts that we had.
1: Well, I believe the supply side and kind of what we're going to get into, uh-huh. and I'll go and introduce you so that we can get into the podcast. Nathaniel, are you happy with everything? Okay. okay. All right. So I'm here with CJ Brock, the CEO of Better Way Medical Group. How are you doing, sir? Let's go I'm ahead and introduce you, man. Doing great. Thanks right. for having me. Well, my pleasure. And hopefully we'll keep some uh, some of that prior because that was really interesting. But we were talking about heart transplants, and I was going to tell you that I haven't focused as much on the supply side uh-huh. of healthcare as I was a light to because I focus so much on the consulting side and the benefits and the delivery side, there's also this obviously the supply side, which is incredibly important to everything that we do on the benefits side. So, you know, I would love to start talking about, and I think even this, this would, yeah. would cover that. So why don't we do this, CJ? Why don't you introduce real quickly what you do, and then we're going to go into your backstory and who you are, man. Sure. Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States, and it's also now the main sponsor of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one, their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two, their mission to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid-sized employers. And number three, the strength and scale of their program. With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at paretohealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments.
0: So, um, as you shared, I'm the CEO of Betterway Medical Group. Uh, we are a specialty physicians group that's focused on driving site of service change from procedures being done um, in a hospital or an ASC okay. uh, now into the office in a procedure room. Okay, so. Trying to, with the advances we've had in in medicine um, and anesthesia, we can now do things in a much more convenient location for the physician and the patient but also at a substantially lower cost and a lower risk of complication. And,
1: yeah, because um, there's, there's, there's multi prongs right? There's, yeah. there's lower costs, which obviously everybody talks about. That's the first yeah. thing they think about is driving out costs. There's the outcome side, right? What's the actual quality of the procedure? And then yeah. the patient, which we're going to get into, I know you focus a lot on the patient experiences. Is that member... Getting a benefit, right? Not mm-hmm. just the, the the procedure was successful, but the entire uh, chain of events is, is 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 you know advantageous, if you will, versus what they're doing today. But before we, I want to I want to cover Better Way Medical in great detail. Um, but I'd like to get to know you real quick first, CJ. So where'd you grow up, man? Are you a Texas guy? Or what? I am not. You okay.
0: probably te- you probably tell I'm i uh, I'm a Midwesterner by Mid- birth. Where I'm, where in the Midwest? So I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew okay. up in Central Wisconsin. So if anybody watched the the uh, U.S. Senior Open this summer. That was about thirty minutes from where I grew up. Okay, played a bunch of golf at that place. It's it's awesome. But uh, yeah, born and raised in Wisconsin, um, went to University of Wisconsin on a golf scholarship, played for the Badgers. Um, right on from there I ended up, but
1: you, so you studied risk management, which I, I think I found out over coffee, which you are I one did. of the elite company that's actually gotten <laughs> into studying insurance yeah. somehow in college. How, what did you have interest in that or what? Well,
0: you know, it was funny. Um, I'm talking to my advisor. I was, I was going to do marketing and I'm like, you know, I'd like to try to do something else too. Is there anything that's related mm-hmm. where I don't have to take too many more classes and I can get a secondary degree Ah, yeah. instead of doing a minor? And he's like, yeah, actually, risk management and insurance—you should check it out.
1: So, so how, um, how was how, why was there so much overlap? Out of curiosity, marketing and risk management. Uh, just just the
0: business classes in okay. general, like you know the um, business law is a central class to both. It's kind of part of that core curriculum. Okay. Okay. I, mean, I think it was another five or six classes, and it was either take five or six classes that were specific to. Um, risk management and insurance or take five or six fluff classes and not really be too interested. And it really doesn't do any good. So what
1: did you think, did you have any intention though, to actually deploy that degree or was it just well, because it made sense?
0: It's funny. I actually did. So okay. there was a, uh, there was a member at the private club that we practiced at that had his own uh, consultant uh, firm. Okay. So they were uh, insurance consultants in the primarily in the public entity marketplace where they would come in and they would look at uh, risk profile Mm-hmm. Uh, of the school district or the municipality and then we look at the overlying uh, the overlying coverages okay and they would basically make recommendations back to the city to say look you're overinsured over here you're underinsured over here we're going to take this to bid with your permission and then they go and take it to bid uh, which hadn't been done in a lot of those cases for many years yeah yeah, uh, yeah. 10 years plus okay. right so yeah it was we were public enemy number one with uh, with insurance agents, right? <laughs> I bet, man. Yeah. We, uh, it's amazing we did when you different.
1: shine a light on where their clients are overpaying or you know paying yeah. for something that's unnecessary. How much noise you could create? Yeah, no, I mean it's that, yeah.
0: it's, it, it's the client loves you and everybody else hates yeah, you, right? Yeah. Like there's. Um, you don't know what you don't know until somebody brings it to your attention. So it's, it's really similar to what we're dealing with in healthcare right now.
1: Absolutely, man. That's what I want to shine a light significantly on that. I'm going to ask you, though, because so I don't want to miss it. You were a pro golfer, right, for a number of years. Yeah, uh, I chased. So
0: um, I chased mini tours okay. uh, and uh, Monday qualifiers for four years. I got into a couple of tour events, okay. um, which was really cool. So I got the the PGA Tour experience, checked that one off the resume. Nice. Um,
1: so then were you able to sustain yourself uh, as a financially, or were you doing it work was, and during that time? Yeah, I,
0: was, I, I wasn't I was working. Fortunately, I had some sponsors that helped take care of me. Okay. Uh, I, honestly, I look back on it now. If I had the work ethic then that I have now, <laughs> given that I have two little kids, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe things would have turned out different. But um, yeah, at the end of four years, um, I ended up hanging it up, partially because of some health care, some personal health issues with okay. back and neck, but partly because I just had that honest realization i wasn't good enough yeah and that's that's a hard pill to swallow when you've been part of the elite player syndicate at every level up until that point
1: yeah and it's funny right as you i i was a high level soccer player in college Uh but then i got to be around guys that elevated themselves to being pros and some had some nice careers. And you see like the percentage difference between you and them. And it's very small, Mm -hmm. but it's also when you actually look at it at scale, it's very huge, right? Because the chasm for what was required for them to be a 10 year pro versus me not quite being there, it seems like on paper, it's a little bit of a difference, but it's actually pretty huge. Right. And I look back and go, well, maybe I'm, I'm actually glad that I didn't chase that too long where I might have missed my 20s or something in, in yeah. setting the foundation for my career as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? I mean, the game of golf is such a great connector of people. Mm-hmm. I've met some incredible people in my life because of the game of golf and because I play at a high level and people like to play with people who are better than they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't think there was any question whether or not I had enough physical talent. I look back on it now. I'm too social to be a good, like an elite golfer. Do you have to be golfers, pretty isolated like very much so okay. right like i i see that as a um a lot of times you're mostly elite athletes are a little bit quirky. Yeah. They're a little bit, they're just different.
1: You have to have an insane drive, right? To, oh, 100%. To, to shoot, uh, you know, a thousand free throws a week or whatever, you know, like yeah. there's, there is there is a oddness yeah. about the obsession yeah. that's required. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: an obsession's the right word, yeah, right? Yeah. Because you don't get to be to, you don't get to that level without being exactly. obsessive. I happened to be watching a, a documentary on Dennis Rodman last night, right? And they were talking about Dennis Rodman's ascent through college and he was telling, talking about his commitment level he would get up in the morning go to the gym go to class go back to the gym go get something to eat go back to the gym right it's it's this obsessive almost obsessive compulsive disorder yeah like I'm just never going to be good enough so I have to keep going yeah and I just like to sit and tell stories and,
1: and uh, <laughs> yeah no, you know, it, in, time, the insurance so. in healthcare world's not a bad place to, to do that but like, yeah. I'm curious though when you hung him up you had that realization did you have any idea what you were going to do next oh I had none okay
0: I had none I had a um I had a daughter on the way and I'm 27 years old and I'm like, what the hell am I going to do now? Right. And I ended up, I was teaching in a, uh, an indoor, uh, golf facility, uh, here in Plano and just through one of the clients that I was working with, got into that discussion about what are you doing now? What do you, you know, I'm, I'm asking questions and I'm kind of poking and prodding.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I ended up getting my first job in healthcare uh, with a home health and hospice agency out of that. And, okay. And life took off from there. So well, how did
1: you get to Texas though? I don't want to skip over that. Yeah, down Met a girl. to Plano.
0: Met a girl. Met a okay. girl. I was living in Tampa. So I was chasing mini tours. Yeah. Right. Living the life. Um, went to Vegas to play in a pro-am and she was out there on spring break with one of her teacher friends. Okay. And I'm out there with all my golf buddies playing a pro am, and uh, fate would have it that we would
1: meet. And uh, (laughs) so she must have been from Texas. From Texas, from the
0: Dallas area. And quite honestly, it was uh, it was convenient because there was a mini tour here,
1: so I could stay (laughs) with her, and then I
0: I fell in love and. The, rest is, the rest is history. That's
1: amazing. Sorry. Right, so, you found yourself in Texas. You found yourself in home health. Like, tell me about that experience. Did you like it? Was it? A, you know, obviously, yeah. Money I mean, was it was it was and, a great first
0: job, right? Yeah. I I cut my teeth calling on physicians, calling on hospitals, um, and I, I guess it was three years in that space before I kind of hit a ceiling where I'm like, hey, I think I could do more. I want to do something different, okay. and um, found my way into bariatric surgery. So I started on the, really on okay. the nutrition side. Um, working for a company that is, at this point, is still the number one um, provider of specialty nutritional products for bariatric surgery patients in the country.
1: Okay.
0: Um, I ended up, with the guidance of the CEO of that company, I went to work for um, uh, which is now Medtronic, as a surgical stapling rep. So okay. I worked in the OR for almost two years, uh, schlepping hernia products, surgical stapling products. So anything that's in the, uh, gut surgery category, okay. uh, I basically saw, and I saw some pretty gnarly stuff, but yeah,
1: I, I had some friends that, uh, would sell devices, man. And I've yeah. heard some stories. Yeah. <laughs> about. So it, it just,
0: it, for me, it, it wasn't enough. Like uh, there wasn't enough action. Okay. Um, there wasn't enough diversity. It was the same thing over and over. Sure. And, uh, you know, ultimately I ended up going back to that specialty nutrition company, but now armed with how the whole universe works, yeah, and things changed. I stayed in the um, in what I would call the, the medical grade nutrition space for another four years before branching out and starting a surgical assist staffing company, okay. um, where we started in orthopedics and spine eventually got into robotics. We still have that company today. Yep. Uh, it'll have, we'll have our 10 year anniversary here in October. Congrats, and, that's uh, amazing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anything that you can launch. That you and, build and
1: launch and it's sustainable for a decade is yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah, man. so we're, um, out of
0: that, I've, I've met some fantastic people, right? So, having served orthopedic spine, urology, colorectal, um, surgical oncology, right, a variety of specialties, um, I was actually calling on an, uh, an orthopedic surgeon that was a shoulder specialist in Fort Worth, met Carrie Corret, okay. um, who was their basically marketing liaison at the time. And we got to talking about the um, in-office surgery platform uh, that her hand and wrist surgeons had been working on. And, okay. and that was 15 months ago
1: Okay, already. Wow, and, so that seems like a short period of time, though, too, as well. So. Um, why don't we do so? Let's get into the premise. If you'll restate again what Better Way Medical Group is, and then i because I want to make sure we don't lose that since we talked yeah, about so it. About yeah, so Better Way Medical Group is a physician's group at its core. Okay. that
0: is focused on delivering high quality, low cost surgical care for hand and wrist procedures in the office setting. Okay, so improve the patient experience, reduce the cost of care, reduce complications. It's it just it's better for everybody, yeah, from whoever's paying the bill to the patient, to the physician, right? That's the premise of the deal. And right now we're hand and wrist only. We have... Yeah,
1: tell me about that. So the starting with the
0: hand and wrist is yeah, just because
1: the surgeons yeah, you're so, working with, that's their focus? Yeah, or, so yeah. Our,
0: our founding surgeons are uh, Dr. Chris Bates and Dr. Nathan Leslie, um, the just wildly talented uh, fellowship-trained hand and wrist surgeons. Okay. Um, they really started following this technology Dr. Leslie did back in 2015. Uh, So this has actually been around as a treatment modality outside of the United States for 25 plus years. Okay. Right. It's a standard of care. You go to socialized medicine countries, um, places like Canada, the UK, uh, mainland Europe. This is the standard of care for how your basic soft tissue hand and wrist procedures get taken care of. Mm U S is obviously behind, but these guys started following that uh, technology, uh, Very interested, but couldn't figure out how to cohesively bring all the pieces together. COVID happens, and they're like, we got to keep things rolling. We can't just roll up shop because we can't take procedures to the surgery center. So Dr. Leslie stepped off and started pushing, and to date, you know, they're – basically three years in from having started this push, they performed about 2,500 surgeries in office. In three uh, years? In okay. three years okay. in their location in Fort Worth. Um, they're on about a 1,000 procedure per year run rate between the two of them. It is, and that's just the in-office procedure portion of their practice.
1: So how, do, how would that compare, like, in terms of the total procedure numbers that you said? Yeah, so,
0: I mean, your average your average orthopedic surgeon, if they're doing three to 500 cases a year, they're busy. In hand and wrist, you'll see average case volume tend to go four to 600 to north of that because okay. the procedures are shorter, right? They're, um, obviously, room turnover happens more quickly. But, I mean, these guys are on, on a little bit different level where they're doing 1,000 to 1,200 procedures each per year. Wow. I mean,
1: um, it's, see, I mean, again, not have much context. I mean, it seems like a lot of procedures. It's a very busy
0: practice. Okay. But it's, it's not um, – It's not overwhelming. Okay. Right. I think that's the that's the critical part. This this whole move to with site of service to in office has allowed them to see more patients, treat more patients, Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. a better quality of life, and make more money. And they shouldn't be shy about being able to make more money. Yeah. Being a physician's hard.
1: Well, that's what I was talking to a physician yesterday about bundled surgical procedures and I you know I said the exact same thing. Nobody's asking the physicians to make less money. I don't think anybody's has complaints about that. It's like the total cost of care the episode yep. of care itself, where all the quote unquote unnecessary or overcharging yep. happens. But I don't think anybody's saying, Hey, we want our doctor's incomes to be beaten down. We well, want them I to mean, feel stressed unless out.
0: Unless you're the Bucas. Uh, well, okay. Well, right? then, I mean, let's just, let's be honest, okay. right? Yeah. Like, fair. Okay. They've, they've done nothing but cut physician reimbursement because that's really the only point of control for them. They, they are being controlled by some of the larger hospitals and health systems versus they can level control against the physicians. Well,
1: then you go, no wonder we have a shortage of physicians. We I mean, know, wonder we have people, you know, general physicians, to surgeons, everything. It's like, well, yeah. of course we do. If you're, you're overworking them, you're underpaying them and they're stressed to the max. They're going, well, why am yeah. I doing this a- anymore? Uh, but not to take us down that rabbit hole. I think obviously what you're offering is a potential win, win, win solution. But let's go back to like general basic questions. Why is the, the premise that doing it in a physician's office is more advantageous than doing it in the typical facility it's done in today? Well, I th- I, let's start with the patient. Okay. Right? The typical experience for a patient to have a simple hand procedure or any
0: procedure at this point is that they have to go through pre-op testing. There's time there. They have to go through a pre-surgical consult. Now they've got to schedule surgery, go to the surgery center. They're going to spend four to six hours at the surgery center. They're going to be under general anesthesia, which means they can't drive themselves there or mm-hmm. drive themselves home. Okay. Right. And there's anesthesia hangover. The next day isn't the same. It's not back to business as usual. Okay. Right. And now you've got your recovery. Yep. The primary driver in this is patient experience. Okay. Right. I don't okay. want that to get lost. Yeah. All. Let's definitely emphasize that. Um, yeah. I, I, I am a huge advocate of being mindful of, of patient's time, right? We now don't require the pre-op testing because okay. you're not undergoing general anesthesia, so you don't have to have your cardiac clearance. You don't have to
1: have blah, blah, blah. Because okay, so it's far less risky, right? right? Far to less do, yeah, it. yeah, it's, okay. also,
0: it's also less risky, right? I mean, the, the average person, what I I've, I don't know what the stat is right now, but I want to say it's 35 to 40% of patients in the United States have diabetes or hypertension, mm-hmm. right, or both. You don't have to undergo general anesthesia anymore. Now it's literally show up to the office... You can have your consult done, sign your consents, have anesthesia applied at a local level, right there in the office, have your procedure,
1: and be home in less than three hours. Okay. Wow. Versus every one of those steps that you just said before, which is multiple days, multiple recovery days. Yeah. Not not to mention, because you don't undergo general anesthesia, you drive yourself there, you drive yourself home, you can
0: even go back to work. That's crazy. Right. So now <laughs> instead of having to take one to two to three days off yeah. to schedule a simple procedure, you're now taking a half a day or less, and you can go right back to work because you haven't, there's no brain fog, right? There's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, well, an you incredible said that
1: rel- lo- much lower relative risk as well. So if I'm an individual, I'm not concerned about, being pushed into this sense of urgency to get a procedure done, because it seems like obviously with the, let's talk, let's take carpal tunnel, for instance, yep. you know, there's a, you make sure this person you've diagnosed, they have carpal tunnel syndrome the way that you described it to me. And I'd like to hear you describe kind of the procedure on the podcast. Cause it's super, super seems like really minimal <laughs> in terms yes. of the outcome, but I'm not worried about somebody pushing me into brain surgery right i'm this, yeah. this is something relatively routine very repeatable very simple it's been done for decades right so there's going okay well this makes sense if i can get relief today i can get pain relief today and long-term pain relief why would i not want to just go ahead and, and and get it done right so could you tell me it real quick because you were describing to me earlier of a coffee kind of what it would be like to get yeah. carpal tunnel syndrome yes. uh, procedure plan Sight is a complete game changer in the world of insurance broker. as a broker You know how time-consuming and error-prone the traditional RFP process can be. But what if I told you there's a better way? PlanSite is the only end-to-end RFP solution on the market made specifically for benefits agencies. It's like having a superpower that gets you an average of 8 to 10 hours back per employer renewal per year. And the best part? PlanSite supports all carriers, all funding types, and all group sizes for over 20 different benefits. If you're ready to make your RFP process faster, more efficient, and more profitable, it's time to call Plansight. Visit PlanSite.com now to book a free demo and discover the future of insurance renewals. You
0: know, carpal tunnel syndrome is is really pretty simple, right? So you have a you have a ligament that goes up through a tunnel, okay. and uh, it's a tissue tunnel, but that um, ligament or tunnel will get inflamed, so it gets enlarged and it becomes tight. It can... Uh, there's nerves that run through there. So there can be a whole series of symptoms that come along with it. But the simplicity of the procedure is that they're basically opening up the tunnel. So they're cutting the tissue to allow that tunnel to release okay. and to open up to reduce pressure. Okay. Reduce pressure, reduce inflammation. Um, the incision itself is tiny, right? It's maybe the maybe the size of your watch band okay. um, in terms of the width. Uh, it's one site of entry. They can go
1: in, perform the procedure, and be out in as little as seven to eight minutes. Was that with the one? Or was that our trigger finger? You're saying where you could even maybe watch it on a screen? Yeah, as I mean, well? you can.
0: Yeah. You can watch all these on a screen, okay. right? Okay. I mean, that's the that's the cool part. If they're doing endoscopic, then yes, there's a screen trigger finger. You can see them there, and again, you can. There, there's a camera that goes in along with the the device that allows for the mm-hmm. the cutting of the tissue, and the trigger finger can be done. Where they can make sure they get the the release to the fullest extent, so you don't have a recurring issue, right? Because when trigger fingers, is basically that finger is clicking or locking, it doesn't open fully. Okay. Right away, ah. right? It kind of catches. Well, they can in in that procedure, the physician's going to have you close your hand, open your hand, close your hand, open your hand. Okay, it looks like we got full release. We're good to go. Pull removes the instrument, tapes everything up. And down the road you go. Well, you said right?
1: conversely, if I was under general anesthesia where I couldn't communicate with the patient, I'm having to guess kind of right to exactly. whether or not I was able no, to. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you have
0: you have a natural, uh, a natural rate of revision that has to occur because you don't open it far enough. Okay. Right. You don't address the whole condition, and that's costly to the health system. Right. It's a pain in the butt to the patient. It's costly Absolutely. to the health system. Um, and look, whenever you're going in for a revision procedure. It's never as good as only having to go in once and get it knocked out, right? And and resolution resolution um, again because you're awake, you're communicating with the physician. uh, It's extremely high. It, It is an incredibly rare experience that a
1: revision has to be done
0: with something like a carpal tunnel or a trigger finger.
1: Okay. Well, so then let's talk about systemically what what has been in place that has caused this to be a rare type of uh, uh, circumstance, right? You said other socialized medicine countries do this yeah. in, in a, hosp- or a physician setting, in an office setting. Yep. We have not historically done it. So why, why is that? Why, why is the system set up in a way that drives up the costs and drives us to facilities? You know, Maybe even the basic premise of why originally it was done that way. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is, this is about um, physician behavior.
0: Physicians are going to perform in a way, and they're going to do procedures in a location where it's most advantageous for them, and it doesn't harm the patient. Of course. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going to a surgery center is not bad. Yeah. Or to a hospital is not bad. But the physician doesn't get paid any more through traditional means to do the procedure in the office than to go to the surgery center. Okay. Well, guess what? There's additional supply cost. Right. There's additional staff that has to be had to be able to safely perform procedures in the office. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have to make it you have to create an incentive for the physician to uh, to challenge the status quo and shift site of service. In this scenario. And I I hate to I I mean, I'm just going to call a spade a spade. Right. We have to pay the physicians an appropriate amount Mm -hmm. to take on doing procedures in their office. There are external costs that they incur that they don't incur when they go to the surgery center. Okay. Right? The way a physician's uh, compensation generally operates if they're in private practice is that they have their professional fees from everything that they do as a professional. And then usually they're an owner in a surgery center or a surgical hospital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're getting a, a portion of the facility fee in return from being an owner. Yeah, All we're doing is trying to eliminate cost centers but beef up the physician professional fee, right? Let's make it easy for the physician to say, yes, I can do this in my office and it's worth my time mm-hmm. and it's great for the patient, Yeah, right? That's that's the premise, a better way.
1: Well, it seems like, a you know, based on the surface, right? To me, it seems like a no-brainer. So let's talk about what would it take for the physician to shift this direction and to, to set up with the staff, but also maybe the internal infrastructure in order to be able to take on these procedures in their office.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's, what's really cool here is Dr. Bates and Dr. Leslie have basically... Um, pioneered not pioneered but they've they've perfected the pop-up procedure room model okay right so you can use an exam room as a procedure room there's very minimal change that has to happen it takes about 20 minutes to move some things around get the supplies out make sure everything is ready and be and be there to rock and roll okay so you know again my my biggest thing is this is not rocket science. We're not asking the physician to perform the procedure differently than what they've done thousands of times in training and in, mm-hmm. and in practice. Mm-hmm. What we what we are doing is we're asking them to use the tools and resources available to them, what their existing staff and their existing facility differently. Okay. okay. And that's not that's not a hard lift. We have um, a highly repeatable model at scale to be able to go in and teach physicians how to do that. Right. But then the second part is, how do they get paid? Yeah. Right. Every physician is uh, is having to represent their own interests with the payer. The physicians don't like it. The payers don't like it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. The payers don't want to make a change for one person and negotiate with every physician under the sun. Quite honestly, what the payers have shared with us is they want to negotiate with uh, somebody who has a larger headcount. It's it's that whole um whole idea of collective bargaining, right? You have more power to negotiate fair rates when you have more headcount. It's why your large health systems have exploded in acquiring physicians' practices and acquiring locations and sites. Same same methodology, right? Mm -hmm. For us, I'm not asking, we're not buying physicians' practices. We're not asking the physicians to be part owners in us. What we're doing is we're trying to create a, a consortium of sorts of physicians that have the same want and need and we represent that want and need one time to the payer, and the payer gets this extensive network of providers to all do it the same under the same set of economic conditions, yeah. and it's very easy to measure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and no, I like it. Now, I was even thinking that we haven't covered the cost savings uh, component here yet, but obviously one of the main reasons you were doing that, um, cost savings, yeah, is uh, – the fact that we could drive down the cost overall right and so you were going to give you were giving me some of these broad-based economics i think you said a million procedures uh happen annually in the hand and wrist in, is, in, is, in just the five most prominent cpt
0: codes just just the five right? five okay. primary five most frequently performed soft
1: tissue procedure codes in hand and wrist there's about a million a procedures. million a year yes. right okay so then give me at scale economics, right, of what maybe could be at stake, saving okay. with your model. If you, so maybe uh, I'm you to do too much math in your head, but maybe even on a case-by-case basis and we can extrapolate it up sure. if you want. But I'm curious because I do think, even though we're obviously, you focus first and foremost on the patient, then you focus obviously on the quality of life of the physician. The other part of this triad is the fact that plans can save significant amounts of money too, right? Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's... Uh Really, the math is pretty easy. Okay. Our average episode of care cost, when we look at all the different procedures that can be done in the office, is about $2,500 okay. to do it in the office, okay. right? The average cost to do that in a surgery center is about $5,000, Okay. and the average cost to do that in a surgical hospital or an HOPD setting is about eight dollars to $10,000, Okay. All right. right? So let's just assume that everything is done in the surgery center, which it's not, but it should be. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've got twenty five hundred dollars on average uh-huh. across the full spectrum of procedures per procedure in cost savings. Okay. Multiply that by a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's two and a half billion dollars when you add the zeros
1: up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just on a conservative side, right? If if everything would yes. shift from the the surgical center, correct? Uh, directly, right? And then that doesn't even include. Are right, you releasing your episode of care for the the average today? Does that include potential revisions and complications on top of that, or is that simply yeah, just yeah? Because uh, yeah. again, you're you're in soft tissue hand and wrist procedures.
0: Complication rates are relatively low. Okay. Revision rates we've seen published
1: average two to five percent. Two two to five percent. Okay. 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 So. So another 20, twenty-five to 50,000 extra procedures a year. That are happening that really sh- shouldn't
0: need to happen, right? It's because the patient's not awake. The patient can't respond to your command and do some uh, interoperative testing. Okay. Right? We can, we can ultimately, the goal is take it to zero, right? The goal is always zero revisions, zero complications, mm-hmm. zero infections, right? But that's not realistic. There's always going to be some of those. Of course. Yeah. But generally speaking the way payment structures are set up um, with physicians and the way something like this should be set up is that the the revision, the risk of revision or the cost of revision falls on the physician. Every tool is there for these physicians to be able to do it right the first yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're not performing brain surgery here or spine surgery, mm-hmm. right? I mean, let's be honest. These are small soft tissue
1: procedures that take 15 to 30 minutes on average and they're right down the middle. Yeah. Once a while,, you know, the, I would say what are the, the, the headwinds, right? Because I'm I'm looking at this, right? And I'm I always try to go, all right, you're you're the guy that you worked for this organization. You built it, right? So you, you obviously have incentive to convince me that it's effective. But I'm looking at going, well, what angle could I take where where this wouldn't this wouldn't work? Or what are the headwinds, what are the forces that are against you, right? So is it a geographic limitation to scale? Is it the fact that you only do certain procedures, is it a combination? Like what are you up against to turn this into something that's done across the country?
0: Well, first, I, I don't want to take credit for building this thing, right? Because okay. I, I, I I've, I've helped to guide the process. Okay. But Dr. Bates and Dr. Leslie and Carrie have been instrumental in, in doing this, uh, us as a group, right? Okay. We, we we succeed as a team, we fail as a team. Yeah, fair, that's, fair, uh, fair, fair, yeah. That's, that's important for us. But I, I think the, the headwinds, I think the headwinds are, are before we talk headwinds, Let's deal with what's not a headwind. Okay. We have a tailwind from the physicians. Okay. Okay. Traditionally, when you're adopting new technology or a new approach, physicians are standoffish. Mm -hmm. In this situation, these physicians are doing nothing different other than changing where they're doing the procedure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the physicians are like, heck yeah. If I don't have to drive to the surgery center and wait for 45 minutes for them to get their lazy rear ends together to get the next patient in, <laughs> yeah. right? And I can control the pace. I'm in. Pay me a little something more. Yes. Love that. But physicians are a tailwind. The patients, 100% a tailwind. Yeah, You can't imagine how many patients are afraid of general anesthesia. Everybody has had somebody that they know that has had a complication from general anesthesia. And guess what? What do you think the average cost is for uh, an episodic complication from anesthesia. No idea. I don't even have a it's guess. About a hundred grand. hundred grand. Okay. Right. We're dealing with a uh, um, great story, right? Here's a, here's a, a use case. Dr. Bates and Dr. Leslie, same day doing the same procedure on two different patients. One in the office, one at the surgery center, the one at the surgery center has complications coming out of anesthesia Hmm. and has to be transferred to the hospital and ends up in ICU for three days. Oh, my God. That complication costs just over $100,000 for the health plan. Dr. Bates' patient went home and went Mm -hmm. on with their life, Mm -hmm. right? Why? Why create the risk when you don't have to? Well, so I even begs the
1: question, and, like, I don't want to skip over this thought. Why do we need general anesthesia in those settings? Why why can't you just apply local anesthetic in the surgery center? Well, I mean,
0: you look, that's happening okay. in, in some okay. scenarios. Okay. However, there's still a facility fee. Facility fee makes up 80% or more of the total episodic spend, okay. right? So the idea is, and, and oh, by the way, anesthesia is still, still charging. It's not the physician applying the, an, mm-hmm. the local anesthesia. Generally, the anesthesiologist, the facility requires that any anesthesia uh, given have to be given by a licensed anesthesiologist, okay. right? So you, you haven't eliminated any of the
1: costs. You've- now the patient's awake, okay, that's great. But, but then, so if, if I if I do it within your model, my physician can deliver if they choose to. They are completely capable and willing okay. to deliver. It's a combination of
0: um, lidocaine and epinephrine, okay. right? It, can, it comes premixed, so they don't have to think about it. They draw the appropriate amount. We teach them how to do that if they need to be taught. And down the road we go, right? I mean, the biggest headwind, right? They're, the patients are on board the physicians on board, the biggest headwind is the payer, Okay. right? Our biggest challenge right now is that the Bucas control a large swath of uh, employer-sponsored lives, mm-hmm. right? They are not willing to change. They just aren't, right? Why change something that's producing results on Wall Street like, yeah, they, like they've absolutely. been producing, right? So this bec- it becomes incumbent on us to while we're engaged in dealing with the BUCAs, it isn't coming on us to be sprinting to deal with the self-funded employers and their support teams that really understand the value of what we can deliver. Right. So whether it's brokers, consultants, uh, TPAs, um, the employers themselves, right. We have to get outside the box and think outside the box on how to deliver our solution in a nice, neat little package that can be easily
1: executed. Well, that's a great segue, because I did want to actually talk application at the employer level. Obviously, I told you beforehand, I think the majority of the audience of this podcast are consultants, right? Are interested consultants and finding new solutions uh, continually. So let's talk about how we apply this to a self-funded employer, right? So are you typically having, if you're having a conversation to get access to employer, it's probably through, like you said, the TPA or the consultant channel, right?
0: That's absolutely right, through the advisor, right? Our, Our intent, very thoughtfully is not to try to leapfrog
1: yeah. Um, that trusted resource for
0: the for the employer. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's right? good instinct, but it's also, I honestly, it's the right way to do it because those those consultants obviously not only have access to hundreds of employers potentially, but their job is to represent objectively that employer on behalf of those vendors to make sure they are putting in the right things, and, and it makes sense. But so, like, if I'm going to look at this for a self-funded employer, how are you putting it into a plan, or how are you making it where the members are aware and there's the right incentives and things in place so that they are are using this as an alternative instead? Yeah. I mean,
0: I think right now we're at the point where we're actually helping develop the solutions okay. as we come across the scenarios. Ah, Everything okay. is a little bit, every, every solution or every need seems to be slightly different. Um, you know, some consultants and brokers and employers are armed with um, third party partners that have formed these alternative networks. Okay. Right. So we're plugged in over there. we can, Create the um, the delivery model custom to the uh, to that employer, like with Kempton Group out of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. We have we have a direct relationship with them. They have the relationship with their em- employees,
1: and with our help, we go in and co educate the employers and, and the employees. Well, that's what I was going to ask. The communication piece is obviously key because if I'm a member that doesn't know heads or tails about most of the part of my plan, just because I don't use it much or I'm just not paying attention that much to everything that's there, how am I aware? How am I made aware that when I do need carpal tunnel syndrome uh, surgery, that this is yeah, the I path mean, I should you take? You know,
0: what's interesting, we've been we've been piloting um, a concept of, with the permission of the consultant and uh, the ones that are driving the benefit plans, actually go in and do free screenings. Mm, okay. So we'll actually go to the to the location of the employer. And uh, it, it's literally, it's a five-minute consultation. So it doesn't wildly disrupt the day of the, of the employee. We're right there on site. We bring in the mobile technology that we need to be able to, to run the screening. And we deliver the education and the result and say, look, if you'd like to schedule something because you feel like this is problematic, we have a solution right here. And we'll get on the phone and help take care of that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's that is that hands on approach we believe is going to be incredibly valuable in what we do. Yeah. Because people wait um, hand and wrist pain is oftentimes written off as something else. Or people deal with that longer,
1: okay. than other types of major joint pain,
0: and because it's a
1: little bit more uh, palatable, more, you can yeah. you can you can deal with it, right? Or okay, when you yeah. say it's written off, something else, maybe like arthritis or something, yeah, or, exactly, right, or
0: yeah. uh, you know, it'll it'll resolve itself, yeah, it'll resolve itself, um, yeah, yeah. But again, you know, I I think the biggest kind of going back to the core question, which is how how do we how do we serve this up to the utilizers. I think it's a combination of us having to brainstorm with the benefit advisors <laughs> and with the employers to make sure that there's appropriate incentives in place and, and awareness tools, but then us being able to just step foot on the street and get right to the employee with the employer's approval. Yeah, to plug in and help them understand the importance of hand health and how this how does this work? What are your options? Yeah. Are you a candidate, right? The, the best thing that we do is we eliminate the fact that you're that you have this condition or that you're a candidate for this type of treatment. Yeah. Right? I think what people don't understand is that there's there's oftentimes opportunities to use non-invasive, non-surgical methods to treat underlying conditions
1: that have a great deal of success. Right, surgery should be reserved for people who really need we it. we need surgery? Yeah, yeah. So it shouldn't be the first option, right? Presented right. most of the time. And it's unfortunately, sometimes it is. And I think even like I've heard some statistics on spine surgery. The number of times it's, it really is pretty scary. Honestly, it seems like almost the majority of them probably shouldn't have been done. Uh, yeah. But that's a different story for a different day. Yeah. So let then, so I want to talk to you about. um We're going to zoom out in just a second and talk big picture of healthcare. But right now, we're focused on hand and wrist. Mm-hmm. You told me perhaps that there is the intent to expand to other. Parts of the body oh, in 100%. the future. Yeah. So, what would be next on the the menu? ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer sponsored benefit plans, allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically people, and it become a real simple transition. We thought it was going to be far more complex. I've saved we'll say hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could not say enough about ClaimDoc.
0: Yeah, I, you know, for us, being able to grow and create a, a, a complete footprint in Texas and hand and wrist is A number one. That's okay. our job right now today. Um, obviously to continue that expansion is, is critical as well uh, into other parts of the country, but we also believe there's another four to five specialties that have the same underlying opportunity for us to drive, improve patient experience, improve physician quality of life and drive down costs. Same thing. Right. And that it really starts with podiatry. Okay. So, so that's feet. So feet and yep. Foot feet. and ankle. Okay. Right. There's opportunity in pain management. There's opportunity in ENT dermatology. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, questionably opportunity in sports medicine. What's interesting and what's happened here, just as a point of reference with hand and wrist, that also includes elbow. So a common condition okay. that people have tennis elbow or yeah, gol- yeah. golfer's elbow can actually be treated percutaneously in the office. Okay. Percutaneously. I don't know. Percutaneously what means we can do it basically with a needle. Ah, okay. Right. So minimally invasive uh, and cure it right there in the office under local anesthesia. And again, it's, Highly cost effective, highly effective in terms of time and, and,
1: uh, well, yeah, curiously, aspects. I would ask because it seems like the knee is being avoided, right, in terms of your strategy. So, what makes the knee joint so much more complicated to be able to do this? Yeah, I mean, when you start dealing with knees and hips, um, they're just so well, obviously a hip replacement or knee replacement, that's a very complicated surgery. Yeah, I get but, that. but
0: even, even a simple knee scope, right, I think there's, there's still, um, development of, of technology to allow for uh, access and and to allow for that to be done under local anesthesia, Okay, it's a concern, right? Will it eventually happen? Probably so. Sure, I mean, sure, sure. there's other parts of the country that are doing shoulder scopes under local anesthesia. Wow. Even rotator cuff repairs, I think in Sweden, don't quote me on that, okay. but we know somewhere in Europe, we know that in Europe, they are doing rotator cuff repairs under local anesthesia. No kidding. Okay. So it, it's... For but us, there's an
1: order of operations, right? There's things that are 100%. most obvious to do next. Um, 100%. But it, so it sounds like geography is the first thing of expansion. So you mentioned, I think, Dallas-Fort Worth and San Antonio is your presence currently today in Texas, right? Um, yes. And then the co- they'll obviously increase coverage. But uh, you said something to me interesting off camera before about what you felt it was, like, the number of physicians you felt it was uh, was necessary to have to yeah. saturate the country was far below what I thought. So you would want yeah, to talk to think, me about that.
0: We think that number is, you know, 120 maybe. Up to one hundred and fifty. Okay, for hand and wrist. But so
1: total one hundred and fifty surgeons. One hundred percent. So how?
0: How? Well, I think I, what we're seeking to do is set up regional centers of excellence. Okay. Right. High concentration of physicians in huge, highly densely densely populated markets is a requirement. Sure. Because people have a different expectation. But if you're in a a smaller secondary market or in a rural market, you're accustomed to having to drive for certain things. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, what we want to do is, we don't need 30 people in Missouri or Nebraska. We need three in Nebraska and maybe five or six in Missouri. Okay. Right, because the geographic reach of that being two to three hours to get to the to, to the provider, and, and by the way, because again, you're doing it same day, it makes that two or three hour drive in and two or three hour drive home and it being a day trip a whole lot more palatable yeah, when there's no general anesthesia. The other, the other thing that I would really advocate for is I, I think that there should be some sort of economic incentive for these patients. Totally. Um, you know, we see it in some medical tourism um, parts of our space, but the cost savings are so outrageous. Why not create a cash incentive for that patient to do this and to not have to pay any out-of-pocket expense? Yeah. So a zero out-of-pocket for you to go and use this provider that is located 2 hours away and then
1: oh by the way we're going to write you a check for for helping us reduce our overall healthcare mm-hmm. spend yeah For your inconvenience of having to travel two hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that's when these things become like a clear no brainer to me is when the patient or the member or the individual person has the right economic incentives in place to make them voluntarily make that choice. You're not saying you have to do this, you're saying here is an option. And oh, by the way, if you do do this, here are your economic incentives to make that choice.
0: Yeah. And look, I, I think, I think in what we're doing, it's really complex when you start dealing with facility-based procedures to be able to start building all these programs and whatnot. This isn't hard, right? If we could, if we amass a physician network of 150 physicians across the country, and it's part of a covered service with no out of pocket expense, Mm -hmm. Hey, they're on this preferred list. And Oh, by the way, if you use this preferred list, you get this check. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an employee, I'm like, well, heck yeah. Every time I need a healthcare service, I'm going to go look at that list first. Right. I think we make this
1: more complex than what it needs to be uh, from an operations perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, it has to be simple to work, and it has to be simple to scale, right? Like, I mean, I don't want all these hoops that I have to jump through. I mean, from an administrative standpoint, it has to be as simple as possible. For the patient, it has to be as simple as possible. The economics have to make sense. The physician needs to be incentivized to do so. Mm -hmm. And then the plan needs to benefit at scale by doing this multiple times a year, right? And saving the money on, on the plan. I think all of those pieces sound to me like they're already in place, right? But it's still relatively in its infancy. It's, it so is, it's, but, I, but yeah. here,
0: here's the challenge, right? Yeah. For, your, for your brokers and consultants and your TPAs that are listening, m- my challenge is don't allow limited geographic reach to stop you from exploring or pursuing this opportunity, Okay. right? We often think that we need a critical mass of X number of doctors or X number of locations or X geography covered. That's not the case, guys. Like, in this situation, we see patients from New York get on an airplane and fly to Dallas, hmm. have their procedure done, and fly home the
1: same day. So, like, domestic medical tourism, it's I think you dom- call it. Yeah, domestic
0: yeah. medical tourism, yeah. right? It needs to be part of becoming normal because healthcare is slow to change. If we just let, if we didn't push, nothing would ever change, Yeah. right? We have to push and we have to incentivize to get people to think outside the box. And look, we're entering, um, there's a generation of young people entering the workforce that know how to use these digital tools Mm -hmm. and know how to leverage. And, And oh, by the way, I'm not going to say they're cheap, but they're much more mindful. Right of the dollars that they have available to them, there's a lot more economic mm-hmm. pressure. Costs more to rent an apartment. It costs oh, yeah. more to get a car. It costs more to drive that well, car. The, I mean, the
1: general willingness to question the status quo. Like, I mean, yeah. it's like, why is it this way, right? right. And if if I have a question, I mean, I've I had a uh, like a 27 year old gal not on the couch. She was she came over to the uh, other studio, but she started a company with her co founder called Slingshot Bills, where they do an automated look back to find errors. And she was 26, 27 years old when she started this, and she looked at a problem she had her yourself and yep. said, well, why don't we just go solve this? Right. Like I love that yep. sort of the ingenuity, right. That comes with a young person questioning why this system is set up the way it is. And I sit in that middle gap, I'm 40. So I'm like, yeah. I still have some, well, the reason why it's this way, a young person is this, but no, I am open and I want to highlight the things that are innovative that are going to structurally change the system for, for the better. Right. Yeah.
0: You know, I, 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 so I've got a mentor. Uh, I'll kind of leave you with this, Okay. a mentor that, um, his favorite saying is "Life is messy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Change is messy. Organizations have to embrace messy. Okay. You have to just go do it, yep. and problem solve day by day, because every day that goes by, you miss the opportunity to incrementally get better. If you figure out it'd be one percent better day after day after day, that's three hundred percent better than you were at the beginning of the year. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I don't. I want the message to the, those that view your podcast to be, don't wait, right? There is no reason to wait with an opportunity like this. Mm-hmm. If we can't serve you, we're going to direct you to somebody that we think can, or we're going to tell you this is how long it's going to take to get that done yeah. in market A, B, or C. But ask the question, engage, push, make make this a priority to embrace this type of patient care initiative because your employees are going to notice.
1: Yeah. And when well, in the day and age when recruitment and retention is on the 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 cusp of everybody's lips, right? All employees are thinking about how do I get the best people in and how do I keep my best people, right? You got to figure out ways to keep them happy. And this seems like an obvious way, small, right? This is a niche, um, but it is a niche that at scale could, could actually make a dent in this thing. And so these are the type of things that I love to highlight. I think you had really good instinct to way, you know, kind of close out closing thoughts, but I want to ask how do people get a hold of you? Like if, if somebody's you've piqued their interest, as I'm sure a few people out there listening, you have, what do I need to do to get in touch with you and start putting this in motion? Yeah.
0: So you could, Um,
1: you can reach out to me directly.
0: Um, I'm, I'm never not, I'm never not working. Okay. (laughs) That's kind of the, uh, being, being in a founder's position. Um, it's going to be cj.brock at betterwaymedicalgroup.com. Okay. Go to our website, betterwaymedicalgroup.com. You can find us there. Um, that's probably going to be the two best ways to get in touch with us. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, yeah. And is it Carrie carry, right? And then carry yeah, carry yeah.
0: corret. So yeah, yeah. She Kerry, talked. Carry dot C O U R E T. Yeah at betterwaymedicalgroup.com.
1: But we'll make sure, obviously, when we post all this, we'll link to the website and tag you guys and all that good stuff. But my hopes, right, is even if it one planted the seed in one person's mind, right, like there are plenty of people out there that are really great consultants that are just constantly looking for, what can I do next for my employer to save money? And I, my hopes is this has obviously stimulated some of that thought. So CJ, I appreciate you coming on kind of as a, you know, yeah. almost like as a whim because I know uh, Carrie set this up originally and That's, you came in her stead. But uh, it was great to get to know you Amen. Um, and I'm really, really hopeful that this thing uh, scales at the, the pace that you guys are hoping it does. Yeah.
0: yeah, no, we're excited. We're excited. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to share what we're working on. Right. Cause that's, that's part of the world that we live in. Yeah. I mean, we have to share openly and freely
1: and embrace change. Absolutely, man. Well, my pleasure. Thanks, Spencer. See ya.